Thank you very much, uh, Derek, and your committee for selecting me to give uh, this lecture. Um, I am going to give the story of muscular dystrophy as I see it, uh, and it is a one of hope, uh, and more hope today than it was even three years ago. So that's the basic message. Um, and this just shows you the building that Derek has just referred to that Fran Ashcroft, Peter Donnelly, and I raised money for recently, which really does bring together the genetics, physiology, and the latest genome analysis studies through Peter Donnelly in analyzing human genetic disease. And these are the two buildings. The anatomy department, you can see, looks old, but it's a very good place, as John Morris will say, to work, which is where I started, and the Sherrington building, which abuts uh, the Oxford Centre for Gene Function, the Henry Welcome building here. So we hope to replace the, those two buildings with a new building uh, in the next five to ten years. And what I'm going to tell you now is how uh, Oxford Medicine is really progressing and how supportive it is of doing that bench side to the clinic and back to the, sorry, the laboratory to the bench side and back uh, to the laboratory and back to the clinic again. Uh, Derek has just introduced uh, Osler, so I won't do that again. Um, he was the first Regis Professor of Medicine. But for my story, it was Archibald Garrard who introduced the concept of genetics as the second uh, Regis uh, Professor of Medicine. But the person who perhaps influenced me and my story most is Sir David Weatherall, um, who uh, founded the, Welcome, uh, inst well, the Weatherall Institute of Molecular Medicine, which is pictured here. This is David, who is the perfect example of the physician scientist. And because of uh, this uh, physician-scientist relationship and his great work on thalassemia, this week it was announced that he was awarded the Alaska Koshal Special Achievement Award in Medical Science. Now that's a real achievement for, for Oxford Medicine. And it also reflects this man has trained an awful lot of us in this particular discipline. And Oxford Medicine is thriving. And I'm sure you've heard from Alistair Buchan and uh, John Bell, the current Regis Professor of Medicine, yesterday about uh, the ongoing activities. So with that, I'm going to focus on how my story develops, how I took, as a molecular biologist, the Duchenne muscular dystrophy uh, disease and um, striving to get an effective treatment. For those of you that are not familiar with it, it's m the most common uh, fatal neuromuscular disorder. Its pre prevalence is about 1 in 3,000 males. It's X-linked. That means it only affects males. Uh, females are carriers. There is no curative treatment at the moment except supportive approaches. But having said that, uh, supportive respiratory uh, therapy now means that many of these patients live into their 20s, whereas before, 10 years ago, they used to die uh, in their early teens. Uh, but it's relentless. These boys go into a wheelchair at 12. They have abnormal ECGs, abnormal uh, hearts at the age of 18, and they usually die of respiratory failure, as I said, sometime in their 20s. And if any disease needed a cure, this is one. Because at the moment, uh, we don't understand why, but DMD has a very high new mutation rate in every population in the world. So unless we can screen every pregnancy, we can never eradicate this disease. So we really do have to find an effective treatment. How do you recognize it? Well, this is the first sign. Young boys have difficulty uh, getting up from the floor. Um, they have to push up uh, via their knees, as you can see in the Gowers uh, <coughs> illustrated in this particular slide. Now, the real tragedy, of course, is because of this high new mutation rate, 
Many of these boys are born into a family before it's recognised that the first boy is even affected. And this is uh, three brothers who, in one particular family, you can just see the stage of the disease. If you're unfamiliar, you wouldn't identify uh, this little boy as having DMD. He's got slight pseudohypertrophy of the, of the calf there. Uh, and you can see the dreadful uh, progress of the disease as you go into later life. And this boy has just about to have an operation to cure his kyphosis, the curvature of the spine. So diagnosis may be late, and there may be affected brothers. What about carrier detecting? Why is it that we can't screen the population to see uh, whether any of these females are carriers? And this is a, an old slide that John Edwards gave me and just shows you one of the uh, tests that was used and still is used to identify carriers. And that is a test which measures an enzyme called creatine kinase in the blood. Uh, and if you have a high creatine kinase, that indicates that you've got uh, muscle damage. And this is the 103 three nurses that he tested uh, with, uh, with CK levels. This is the 34 mothers of isolated cases, those spontaneous cases. And these are 27 cases where they thought to be uh, carriers because they had affected sons. And you can see straight away how much overlap there is between the level of CK uh, and, and whether you actually are an obligate carrier, maybe a carrier, or possibly, almost certainly, not a carrier. So it wasn't a very good test at all. So in 1980, quite a lot of the families aborted all males because they didn't want to have a DMD son. So it was unreliable carrier dete detection and no prenatal diagnosis. Then uh, DNA came along, pioneered by Y.W. Kahn and David Weatherall again uh, on the thalassemias. And you don't have to understand uh, how a sudden blot works or DNA diagnosis here. You just need to know for the purposes of this that if you're negative here, you have a band at four point, mark 4.4. And if you're normal, uh, you have... Sorry, if you're normal, you have this uh, negative 1 and 2.2, where it's positive, means you have the DMD gene. The, this is just one example. In one family, this was one of the first prenatal diagnoses we did. Uh, Charles Rodick uh, did the fetal sampling at St. Thomas's in, in, in London. Uh, this lady was an obligate heterozygote. She had uh, an affected son. She'd aborted four male pregnancies uh, uh, before this, uh, before this test became available. We knew what the normal pattern would be because she has a normal brother, and that's why we know the 4.4 pattern is associated with normality. And you can see that uh, the fetal sample was also negative. The problem for us at the time was, of course, uh, this turned out to be a twin pregnancy, as you can see from, from this uh, diagram here. So what we didn't know was whether Charles Rodek had actually sampled the same twin twice or whether there indeed uh, were two normal twins. But you can see by looking over here, you can take a Y-chromosome male-specific probe, and this lady had an instant family, a, a normal little boy and a normal little girl. So it's a lovely ending to one of our first prenatal diagnoses. Now, that test took three weeks to perform. You've all heard of DNA forensics, PCR, how we can amplify DNA now. And so we can now do this test in a few hours. So the bar barrier is no longer the DNA test, actually. It's the NHS and the bureaucracy are filling in the forms to get the information back. So in 1983, prenatal diagnosis was routine because we recognized where on that chromosome the mistake was. We didn't know where the gene was. And we could do the test in a few hours. Carry detection was possible, but still difficult. But now, again, with genome sequencing, which I'll talk about a little bit at the end if there's time, 
uh, we can do this more or less automatically. And this just shows you a normal profile, this is done on a machine now, uh, of all the parts of this particular gene, uh, which are more or less at one single level. And you can see in this particular analysis that this female has a dip here, which indicates that part of her gene is missing. So she is an obligate carrier. Uh, uh, just for completeness, some of these patients actually have additions to their gene. They have duplications of part of it. And this is a male who was diagnosed with DMD who clearly has a duplication of this part of the DMD gene. So DMD diagnosis 2010. Prenatal diagnosis is routine, and it's routine in a lot of countries, not just in the developed world. Carrier detection is possible. And the new sequencing technologies means that many of these will be diagnosed at birth if we wanted that information. And that uh, is a bit of an ethical dilemma at the moment because we don't necessarily want to tell these families that their children are going to be affected when we can't do anything about the disorder. Uh, but I think the balance will begin to shift once we begin to have an effective treatment because the earlier we treat, the more likely we are to be able to do something effective about it. So, I've told you that it's a dreadful disease, we've got prenatal diagnosis, we want uh, an effective treatment. So the first thing we have to do is decide what is it that causes the disease. And the gene was first cloned by uh, Lou Kunkel uh, in uh, Boston, and he called this gene and the protein dystrophin because the lack of dystrophin causes muscular dystrophy. So it's a complete lack of a very large protein in muscle that causes this disease. And amazingly, 65%, which is a very high percentage for any genetic disease, uh, uh, of these patients don't have parts of this gene. Bits of their uh, gene are missing, and we still don't know why that is. Or it's probably the reason there's such a high new mutation rate, but what it is about the genome that makes it delete so frequently, we still have to determine. This shows you a normal muscle biopsy, and what you can see here, this is the white staining of the dystrophin protein at the periphery of each of these muscle fibers in a normal individual like you and I. This uh, is what the pattern you get in a DMD patient. As I said, they've got bits of their gene missing, and uh, therefore they don't pre produce any dystrophin at all. Occasionally, uh, they do have a positive fiber, and I'll come back to this towards the end of my talk, where nature itself skips over the little bit that's missing, puts the gene back together again, and makes a slightly smaller protein that is then localized at the, at the uh, periphery of the muscle cell. This is a milder form of the disease, where you can see there's much less staining at the membrane. So this patient almost certainly <clears throat> has a small amount of his gene missing. But again, it's put back together again um, by nature. And so he's got a partially functional molecule because it doesn't bind as well uh, as you can see in normal muscle fibers. So he has a mild muscle disease, may go into a wheelchair at 30 or 40 years of age. So this looks a very complicated uh, diagram, but you don't have to uh, understand anything about uh, molecular biology or protein or muscle biology. Suffice it to say that dystrophin is a long molecule that connects the inside of the muscle cell to the outside. And if you lose that link, then you destabilize the muscle membrane. So I've taken it away. As soon as you take dystrophin away, you lose these other components at the membrane. So you've completely lost this link, which weakens uh, the uh, muscle membrane here, the sarcolemma, and allows enzymes in, which then degrade the muscle. So 
Dystrophin is caused by the absence of the protein. The absence of the protein uh, means that that link disappears and the muscle membrane is fragile. And that's probably why you don't see it immediately at birth, because it isn't until you lose your, use your muscles again and again that you begin to identify that fragility and you get the progressive disease. So, it's a large protein, so we have a huge challenge here. We, don't, we can't just uh, replace a little bit like we might do in other diseases like haemophilia. We have to put in at least 20% of the normal levels. At least that's what the mouse experiments are telling us. Uh, in order to be able to get clinical benefit. Dystrophin is expressed in all your muscles, which is, as you can see here, an awful lot of your body. 40% of your body mass is muscle, and we need to get it into every single muscle, and we need to get it into your heart muscle, as well as your skeletal muscle. And we need to make sure we don't get an immune response with anything that we try and replace it uh, with. And, of course, we need a lifelong treatment. So how do we do it? And I'm going to give you a quick uh, resume of uh, some of the methods that have gone into the clinic recently, and then I'm going to concentrate on two, because I, actually I think they're interesting, and two, I think they are the two uh, most promising ones. So first of all, if you increase muscle mass of the muscle that is left, you will increase muscle strength. And this has been uh, taken into the clinic, IGF, uh, myostatin inhibitors, all uh, growth factors that affect muscle growth. Uh, and these have been rather disappointing and relatively ineffective. Stem cells, the holy grail, they're in the newspapers almost every week. I mention these because uh, there are certain groups, which remain nameless in the world, who are actually delivering these to patients. Um, we don't know what a stem cell is in the context of muscle yet. So all I say is that I'm sure somebody will be standing here in 10 years' time saying that stem cells do work, uh, potentially in the context of DMD, but we're a long way away from that at the moment. Occasionally, there's a mistake in the gene that tells the machinery to stop making the protein. And uh, one of the ways in which you can cure that is to put in a drug which makes the... Uh, machinery read through that particular error. And that's called suppression of stop codons. And again, um, that was taken into clinical trial uh, a year ago by uh, PTC Therapeutics in the United States. And just recently that trial has been suspended because it turned out not to be very effective uh, for the disease. And that addressed about 10% of patients have that type of mutation. So what I'm going to talk about just very briefly is microdystrophin uh, of uh, delivery uh, using plasmids or viruses. Gene therapy conventionally has meant you can take a virus like a cold virus, you can take everything out of it except what makes it a virus, you can take the bits out of it that make it lethal uh, or give you a cold, uh, and you can replace that with the gene of interest. And that's uh, used reasonably successfully for haemophilia. The problem with DMD is this gene is very large, and most viruses won't fit in the large protein, the full gene. So it was a major challenge. And this is an example of where a really observant clinician, the late Sarah Bundy, had uh, this particular patient uh, who came into her clinic. Uh, he this is him just after he's left the army. This is him uh, a few years later in his early 40s. He's just climbed up that cliff. He needed the walking stick to do so, and you can see his characteristic gait here a few years later, again walking uh, with a stick. Now, 
he, I went to this gentleman's 65th birthday. He died when he was 72. And Sarah sent it to me and said, I'm sure he's got Becker muscular dystrophy. He's very mildly affected. He must have just a very small part of his gene missing. And he doesn't. He has the biggest deletion that's ever been described. Um, so that was amazing and extremely fortunate because it meant that if he could do that with that little gene, if we could reproduce his little gene, we could put it in a virus and we could deliver it. And indeed, that's what uh, Jerry Mandel and Jeff Chamberlain have done. This is just the mouse experiment. There's wild-type uh, normal muscle in a mouse, the usual pattern that I've already shown you. If it's knocked out, uh, you don't get any dystrophin. If you uh, use a virus to deliver uh, that mini-gene back in again, uh, then you restore uh, the function. So uh, clinical trials of that particular approach are ongoing. And there are obviously going to be problems with the immune response. And you've got to deliver it to all muscles, as I mentioned before. Nevertheless, with transient uh, immunosuppression, it ought, to be able to be, it ought to be possible to improve the quality of life of some of these patients using this particular therapy. Now uh, I'm going on to uh, eutrophin upregulation. And this is a pharmacological approach, so rather than having gene therapy, which can be quite expensive because you've got to uh, prepare all of that virus, the advantage of just uh, popping a pill, as you are fully aware in this room, I'm sure, is that you'll affect every tissue in your body, and it's potentially cheaper to deliver. So in 1989, uh, whilst I was working in the Weatherall Institute of Molecular Medicine, we identified a second protein that is very similar to dystrophin. And again, you don't have to be a wizzo molecular biologist to recognize how very similar these two proteins are. In fact, the only place they are different is in this middle section. And that middle section is the middle section that that particular patient I just referred to was very mildly affected is missing. So uh, I suspect this is not as important as these bits that bind various uh, muscle proteins in the cell. And we call this protein eutrophin, because unlike dystrophin, which is only expressed in muscle and brain, uh, eutrophin is everywhere. So if it's everywhere, why doesn't it just replace uh, dystrophin uh, by itself? This is uh, in a... Uh, a muscle biopsy from a mouse. There's the m normal dystrophin. You can see here, this is eutrophin. Now, this uh, staining, you can see, is completely different from that. And if you're not used to looking at muscle biopsies, this is at the muscle membrane, and this uh, localization is at the junction between the nerve, uh, the neuromuscular junction, the junction between the nerve uh, and the muscle. So eutrophin is in a different place in normal muscle. If you look at the mouse model of this disease, this mouse has a, an error in its sequence and doesn't produce any protein. Occasionally, uh, even in the MDX, uh, nature will skip over that mistake and put it back uh, in order so that you get some protein. But you can see in the vast majority of this mouse's muscle, it doesn't have any dystrophin. In the absence, uh, in a normal mouse, in the absence of dystrophin, however, though, you do get uh, some localization. You get some increased levels of eutrophin. Now, that's interesting because uh, if I brought that mouse into the room, which I haven't, um, it would run around very happily because mice can regenerate their muscle fibers extremely quickly, which ma ma uh, man cannot do. And there's another factor, perhaps, and that is that it increases its level of eutrophin and therefore it partially compensates 
in a way that doesn't happen in the human situation. So our hypothesis was then that if we could increase the levels of eutrophin in a normal muscle cell, because it's so similar to dystrophin, we ought to be able to alleviate the disease to a certain extent. Was there any evidence that that might be true? Well, if you look in DMD patients, this is the uh, normal uh, individual, and this is the patient with complete absence. This is a Duchenne patient, complete absence of dystrophin, and this is eutrophin. And even in patients, you start to get what we saw in the mouse, and that is uh, some uh, redistribution of the eutrophin protein at the sarcal limit. So it's almost as if it's trying. And indeed, if you look at a whole series of DMD patients, they will all have different levels of increased uh, eutrophin expression at the muscle membrane. And uh, the group led by uh, Cleopa demonstrated actually that the levels of eutrophin that you produce naturally correlates with how late you go into a wheelchair. So that was really encouraging evidence that perhaps even in man, as well as in the mouse, you might be able to replace dystrophin by increasing the levels of eutrophin. And finally, this is just a, a human development, uh, an experiment carried out with uh, Victor Dubovitz's group in London. You can see it going from a 12-week fetus to a nine-month infant. Dystrophin is expressed fairly early on at 12 weeks and increases uh, as you get towards birth. Eutrophin, remarkably, is also expressed in exactly the same place as, you, as, as dystrophin early in fetal life and then is turned off at the sarcolemma and is only found at the neuromuscular junction. So sometime in early human fetal development, uh, this did the same job as dystrophin, again, encouraging us that this might be possible. So our hypothesis then was we can increase the levels of eutrophin and thereby uh, think about curing the disease. So for that you need to prove uh, it through uh, mouse experiments. So going back to the mildly affected MDX mouse, you can see that in spite of it being fairly mildly affected, there's quite extensive necrosis here. And for those of you not used to looking at muscle biopsies, these are nuclei, the black dots, and when they are centrally localized, it means that the muscle has regenerated itself, which is indicative uh, of disease. If you come over here, where we've increased the levels of eutrophin, you can see that all of these uh, nuclei these black dots are actually localized at the periphery of the muscle fiber. So it works spectacularly well uh, in the mouse. In fact, you cannot tell a dif the difference physiologically between the function of a mouse that has lots of eutrophin in its <coughs> muscle compared uh, to a normal mouse. And in fact, you get the threshold of recovery at about three to four times the normal levels uh, that you would find uh, in muscle in any case. And that is no, nowhere near the amount of eutrophin you have in your kidney, uh, which is about tenfold higher than it is found in muscle. Now, I don't know what it's doing uh, in kidney, um, but the most important thing is that uh, it's well within what nature would normally uh, produce in other tissues. And finally, if what I said about the uh, MDX being very mildly affected is because of some compensation with the eutrophin protein, what would happen if we took eutrophin away as well? The answer should be that we're going to get a very severe uh, disease. And that's indeed uh, what we do get. This is a normal, well, not normal, sorry, MDX mouse 
Uh, and this is when we've taken um, the eutrophin gene out as well. And you can see here the kyphosis, the curvature of the spine that I showed you at the beginning, uh, characteristic of that patient. These mice last 20 weeks and then they die. So it's a very progressive uh, muscular dystrophy. And so now, as I'll show you later, this has become a paradigm. If you can cure this mouse, uh, then you're well on the way of getting something that might well work in the clinic. So eutrophin uh, potentially could re replace dystrophin because we've got functional recovery. We need three to four times the normal levels. We need to do it as early as possible because obviously these boys are losing their muscle uh, all the time. The problem is, if we have a drug, does it need to be specific? Uh, obviously, drugs have side effects in addition to the specificity. But if you increase eutrophin in the mouse in every single tissue in its body, it doesn't have any toxic effect, providing you do it at sort of therapeutic levels, three to four fold. So that uh, tells us that it, that's likely. It's not a surprise. There are lots of genes that do that. You can upregulate them uh, in tissues you don't expect and you don't get a toxic effect. So the big challenge then is what drug would work to increase eutrophin? Um, yes, and the problem is uh, you could take two and a half million chemical compounds and go through them one by one. Uh, it is like finding a needle in a haystack. So you have to reduce the haystack. And very fortunately, put a plug in for the chemistry department in Oxford here, that uh, there... Uh, particularly Angela Russell, who's in pharmacology uh, and as well as chemistry, and Steve Davis, have developed a whole a special library where they can use the computer and the information they have from all the other screens that they have been uh, engaged in to enrich that library. So instead of screening uh, 2,000 things against an assay, you can actually, sorry, 2 million, you can do it with perhaps two or 3,000. We could develop an assay. We could take the beginning of the eutrophin gene, which has the genetic instructions that tells you what the levels should be. We can put a light marker, which is luciferase. If this is increased, then the, you'll get a, a flash of light in your test tube. And so uh, we can add a small amount of uh, chemical molecules. In this case, we took the first 200 and identified one chemical series that uh, upregulated uh, the eutrophin genetic regulatory sequence. And in fact, um, the people in my lab work very hard with the chemist, and you can see this is just one of the uh, plates that we used where several of these uh, drugs actually do increase the levels threefold, uh, and in fact, the one I'm going to talk about increases it five or sixfold uh, above the base level. And many of these have uh, a very good dose-response curve in the nanomolar range, and some of them looked as if they were druggable. So in the end, we had to screen about 5,000 compounds. We had to uh, establish that they really were increasing eutrophin and not just some artifact of the luciferase screening system. And uh, we identified a lead series. Then... Uh, you need to get a biotechnology company involved, and we set one up. It was formerly called Vastox PLC, and that's another strength of Oxford, because we were able to, with the help of the university, uh, set up this company, and uh, they took this compound uh, and developed 
uh, this to what is now known as C1100, and we did a licensing deal with Biomaran Pharma last year to take this to the clinic. And that just is to remind me to tell you, this sounds as if it just went like this, like this, like this, but it's in fact four years later going from that hit identification to lead optimization that gets you there uh, to the clinic. This particular molecule uh, is still promising, and I'll come back to uh, where we are in the clinical trials in a moment, because it deals with the primary cause, it reduces the muscle damage, um, and it reduces the secondary effects that we see, and it was drug-like, we could deliver it systemically, we could uh, scale it up very importantly, and certainly in the preliminary uh, tox assays, it looked as if it was safe. And it's, we have no evidence to suggest it isn't, uh, even at the moment. So what's the current status of this? Um, Biomaran have just uh, completed a phase one trial with a particular formulation of this drug. Unfortunately, it was, did not stay in the bloodstream for long enough to have uh, what we would predict. This is just in normals. This is a phase one trial. And so Summit at the moment are going back. They have another formulation of this compound, and we hope to take it back into the clinic uh, later on. Uh, where are we now? It'll probably be next year. Um, and we have some follow-up compounds, as indeed Bimaran do, to uh, take this particular strategy forward uh, for patients in the future. Now I'd just like to uh, talk about uh, uh, something called exon skipping. This is not only a remarkable disease, it's a remarkable gene. And for those of you not looking, uh, look, used to looking at genes, normally a gene come in two or three pieces. This comes in 79 pieces. Um, and this is what these little uh, blue things, some of them, they're about 100 base pairs each, but you can see some of them are very small, but on uh, average they're about 100 base pairs. And they stretch over an enormous amount of DNA uh, and they're all joined together to produce the final protein that you can see down here. Now, you will also notice that these are not only they slightly different sizes, but they have different ends. So these have straight ends, and these have uh, pointy ends. Or So the trick is, if you're going to produce a protein through the usual machinery in the cell, you need to have the right ends joining to the next piece. So what happens in some of these deletions is that these ends don't match. So, for example, this patient has a deletion of exon 44, just one of those 79 exons. And yet, because this end, on 40, the end of 43, does not fit with 45, then that generates a stop codon, tells the cell, I will not produce any more protein, and you get non-functional dystrophy. You get non-functional messenger RNA, you don't get any protein produced. And so you can also uh, imagine that in that patient with that huge deletion, not only was he lucky that he took out the right bit of the gene, which is the middle bit, but he also took out just the right number of those little pieces so he could join back together again uh, with uh, the right sort of ends joining up. But you can then put a... You can trick nature and you can say, well, 43 doesn't join to 45, but you'll notice that if I join 43 to 46, it would fit. So if I ablate, I take out 45 as well, skip the exon, exon skipping, as these little units are called exons, then I'll put that uh, back in frame, 
and I'll get a slightly smaller protein, may not be as functional, but I will produce dystrophin. So I will convert a devastating uh, DMD phenotype to a mild Becker muscular dystrophy phenotype. Can we do that? And the answer is amazingly well. This time, I'm sorry about the confusion, this is, uh, but these are the same ones as the blue, same ones as these. ESE just means they are those little bits, they're coding. So we know a lot about what causes exon uh, splicing, how the genes are, are, are put together uh, to make that final messenger RNA which gives rise to the full-length protein. So we can hide the ones, that sequence that is causing the problem. We can promote the machinery uh, on the neighboring exons, which then uh, uh, forces the machinery to skip this exon and go from, in this case, 43 uh, to 46. And that's how uh, exon skipping works. How well does it work? Well, just to remind you, this is a very severe uh, mouse, no dystrophin, no eutrophin. Um, only survives three weeks. So if I can get the videos to work. This is um, the mouse at five weeks of age, uh, not moving around very much. Then we inject the mouse with one of these molecular patches that induces the skipping that I've just shown you. It's magic. And this mouse is 18 months old now, right? So it is spectacular. And we never thought it would work so well. And when I say we, it's a very raw we, because this is an international collaboration of a lot of people working on exon skipping. So if you could do that with a patient, it would be really good. So where are we with clinical trials of exon skipping? Well, uh, this was pioneered by ProSensor in Holland, who first devised the uh, method of exon skipping, particularly Judith van Dutekom and Gertjan van Ommen. Uh, and in, Lo in London and Newcastle, uh, Francesco Montoni and Kate Bushby have also used a different type of chemistry, but you don't need to bother about that, uh, again, to think about exon skipping. The systemic trial, that means where you inject it so that it goes to all of the body, has just been completed. Uh, by ProSensor in collaboration with uh, GlaxoSmithKline. Uh, so there are favorable results, and they're going on to do uh, um, clinical uh, phase three study. When I say favorable results, though, uh, I should exercise some caution here, um, but I better be careful what I say. Um, the, that uh, this is by no means a cure yet. Uh, really, we need to get the levels up by quite a long way before we end up with a cure, but it's very encouraging indeed. And again, the London trial, using a slightly different chemistry, a systemic trial still ongoing, but again, those results look extremely promising. There's lots more work to do. They've got to increase the levels um, in order to be able to really make this clinically effective, but I think we've come a long way uh, in the last couple of years. The other problem with this approach is that I've already told you that lots of these patients have deletions and most of them are different. So that means that you have to have a molecular patch like that to exon skip, which is different for every patient. And if the regulatory authorities would allow us to have one drug, 
then we'd be able to make it cheaper. If we're going to have to have a, a molecular signal for every single different deletion, it's going to be too much for us to be able to deliver this to the clinic. So um, that's another challenge uh, that my lab and other labs are now trying, is that if you could find one that would skip all of these exons and would just put whatever deletion you had, if you could just stitch 44 to 56, you'd cure the disease. It, it's very difficult to do, but I hope we will get there in the next couple of years, because then we'll have one drug to exon skip uh, for this particular disease. So for this strategy, exon skipping is promising in clinical trials. We need to improve the efficiency, uh, and we need to make it m more widely available through this multi-exon approach. So just reflecting over 20 years, I think it tells you how long these things take. In 1981, we had the first prenatal diagnosis of the markers. In 1986, Lou Kunkel uh, cloned uh, the gene and told us it was dystrophin, but we still uh, didn't understand uh, anything about how to address an effective treatment. We, uh, in the late 1980s, were thinking about putting it into viral vectors, and it wasn't until we got that patient that I described to you that we could get it small enough uh, to be able to put into vectors. Uh, our own uh, discovery of eutrophin has helped. Uh, the initial clinical trials with gene delivery in plasmid started in 2004, but really I think uh, I used to give this lecture two years ago, and I would say, have said, I think it's going to be a very long haul to get an effective treatment of DMD. I'm very pleased to say that I'm optimistic today. I would say, I'm not going to put a time scale on it, but um, I would be optimistic that we will find uh, some effective treatment of muscular dystrophy. Uh, and it'll maybe have to be a combination of exon skipping and eutrophin and maybe uh, stem cells in the more distant future. But all of this technology now can be applied to lots of other diseases besides DMD. The way we've manipulated the viruses and what we've learnt can be applied to a lot of other disorders, uh, even non-genetic ones. Exon skipping is being used for spinal muscular atrophy uh, and even um, dementia. Certain forms of dementia are caused, again, by misplicing of genes. We've got the examples now. We know how to do it. We can do exon skipping in these other diseases too. Sometimes you produce too much of a protein and that causes a disease. We can exon skip in those situations and uh, knock the gene out. In other words, do what nature does in DMD and uh, devise a treatment for those particular disorders. So what does the future hold more generally? Well, uh, there's going to be lots of genetic diagnosis based on whole genomes. And I just thought I'd put it in because this is today's price for sequencing a genome. And the reason it's two human genomes is they have to put two human genomes in a on a single gel run. So they don't do it one genome at a time. Uh, and they can do that every two days for $10,000. Now, the Human Genome Project, which started 10 years ago, costs $3 billion. So the prediction is that by next year, we will be able to sequence your genomes uh, for about $1,000. Well, I suspect it'll stop at about $3,000, because otherwise the companies won't be able to make a profit. But that is not a bad price for all the information about, on your DNA, provided we can think about uh, understanding these diseases and getting a treatment. So uh, for Derek Jewell's benefit, even in inflammatory bowel disease, we may be able to identify some candidates. 
and maybe we can all understand why it is that we have some of these uh, uh, diseases in the population. And I think once we begin to understand these diseases, we know what the genes are doing and how they interact, only then can therapy really uh, begin to happen. So for today's medical students, it's going to be the human bar barcode and lots of promise to do lots of things. And I wish I could live 100 years uh, in order to be there to see the benefits of this. It's going to take a long time, but it's going to be a lot of fun. Thank you very much.